This episode contains discussion of sensitive topics. Please check the description for details and content warnings. Thank you for listening and take care. listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Camille Roy to read from her new short story collection, Honey Mine, and after that, she'll be joined in conversation by Michelle T. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com. And without further ado, Camille Roy is a queer writer of fiction, poetry, and plays. Her newest fiction collection, Honey Mine, came out from Nightboat in June 2021. Previous works include Sherwood Forest and Cheap Speech and Swarm. She co-edited Biting the Error, Writers Explore Narrative. Earlier works include The Rosie Medallions and Cold Heaven. Her recent work has been published in Americana and Open Space. Michelle T is the author of over a dozen books of memoir, fiction, poetry, and kids lot. Most recently, the Penn award-winning essay collection, Against Memoir. She is a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow and host of the mystical podcast, Your Magic on Spotify. Thank you both so much for being here. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I am so happy to get to talk to Camille Roy, who's um, writing I've known for decades. And when I lived in San Francisco, I had the pleasure of getting to see Camille read and just like through time has become such a really powerful influence on my own writing. And not only on my actual writing, this is Michelle talking beauty dubs, but on my, my desire to write on my like compulsion to write like it's and it's when you have a new book come out, Camille, and I get to read it and reimmerse myself in your voice that I am just like reminded of, of like what, how powerfully I feel affected by your writing and what a joy it is to read the way you oh, write about you. your own past and the way you conceptualize the past. Um, and, and I wanna get all into that um, with you. Did you wanna read first or do you wanna chat first? Um. You know, I wonder if I should just read a little bit first and then we can take off. Yeah, or read a little bit so like listeners can get in your group. Yeah, so they can yeah. just get a sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read from this, this piece in the book called The Agatha Letters, where yeah. the protagonist is writing Agatha and going over in her mind these tumultuous events in her life, which involve... Uh, a bus for prostitution, disclosure of incest, and very intense falling in love. So it's one of these flooded periods in a protagonist's early life. Um, 
and she's reflecting. Dear Agatha, mostly it's boring to be a girl. You're a prisoner of your girlish appearance. You can't get outside. You are either with all the other girls studying themselves in mirrors as they dream of devouring meat, their own excess flesh, anything to get rid of it permanently, or someone is trying to stuff something weird between your legs. It's one or the other. I was clear on this. Being a mess gave me a kind of immunity, but it didn't make me stupid. Far from it. In truth, understanding roared inside me as regards to the whole situation of girls, although it didn't quite trouble me because I ignored trouble even when I was in it. In my characteristically vague but stubborn way, I disregarded the situation of girls. After all, I had never been inside anything, including appearances. I was too skittish. I never said no or yes. I trembled constantly, a hungry ghost. So when I pushed open the pink door of the massage parlor and found its yellow sateen couch coated with girls and they were wearing bright 70s loungewear and waving cheerfully at me, I leapt over the threshold. I threw myself through the door, as though to the accompaniment of timpani, a drum roll, the cacophony of hormonal triggers. It was the summer I turned 21. Some moments are perfectly lurid, but also fresh. That moment rose like a welt from its historical bed, and I fell in it. I was in love with my times. And that meant hate was interesting. Vietnam was over but it had left residue, the mob in the street, which included everyone I knew. Anyone could join, so we did. Political life was filled with spite and much of it came from us or our kind. Each day took place within the margin between the passing hour and imminent collapse. For that was all that many of us believed in. Even the corruptions of the state seemed exhausted any small act of rebellion might be the final straw. It turned private desperation into a kind of festival. I'm digressing now from the specifics of the parlor, but I wanna decorate this part of my story with another one, the story of Sarah and Sand. Sarah was political in the paranoid style of the times and Sand was younger, impressionable. Sarah became involved in a particularly fierce ideological argument. And when she lost that argument, she claimed the entire revolution for herself. She turned herself into a cause. Sand remained faithful. Really, she clung to Sarah. She became Sarah's party of one. For a few months, no meeting or demonstration could occur without Sarah and Sand bitterly silent, striking a pose that conveyed Sarah's heroic martyrdom and Sam's abject loyalty. This was widely understood as Sarah trying to haunt us with the ghost of her leadership, and it was annoying to everyone. Then for a few months, they were rarely seen. When Sarah surfaced, she announced that she and Sand were going to leave town in a van and travel as gypsy witch communists. This was a bit of Sarah's trickery, an example of her inclination towards subterfuge. For instead of leaving town, they wrapped themselves in toilet paper and lit it on fire. Sarah went up like a torch and died. 
Sand lost her nerve at the last instant and rolled frantically around on the wall-to-wall -wall shag. Still her ear burned off, as well as the skin on one arm. She lay in a burn bath for a month. Then she was shipped home to be cared for by her alcoholic parents. We could talk for a bit and then I could go on or? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh my God, I love, <laughs> just land and end on that note. Um, God, I just, I love so much how you write about the past and how you write about the way that like personal, the, your personal experience and the collective experience of the past. And it just feels like, what did I, you were actually, I was like, I've taken such copious notes and, um, love how you're like I think chunks I think of chunks of my past as brain chemistry is something that you've written I think in the Agatha letters actually and it made me think of James Baldwin writing the past is another country and it's like how do it's like how do you how do you feel about the past when you think about it is does it feel like another country does it really feel like brain chemistry it's like it's like you're from a world that is mm -hmm. truly gone, you know, and that you're you're marked by as deeply as being, you know, from from any country or of any ethnicity. Yeah, there's this Buddhist named Thich Nhat Hanh, and he mm -hmm. says the past hasn't disappeared; it has become the present. And mm -hmm. um, and that's actually an interesting way to think about it because, um, I think that it is that I mean there's just so many of these paradoxes are true right the past has become the present and yet so much is lost and sometimes aspects are lost that it seems so wrong and inconceivable that they would be lost it seems like something precious really has gone and um so somehow we live in the duality between those two things right and I think that part of part of what makes it um, something that you can work with, that I can work with, is that those parts of my past that I feel it's easy to sort of repress and go on and forget, often those are the exact parts that I have to be careful to treat with love and tenderness and give them space in my life so that they are not, because so often what gets lost in the past is that which is just suppressed often for reasons of who just happens to have power at a particular moment in history you know that's all mm -hmm. and um you know one of the things that's been so really kind of wonderful about this book is that i've been able to bring into the present these aspects of the past that for which i have a a, a, a you know which I just still find very, very interesting. These moments when potential was kind of exploding in all kinds of directions and new, new parts of people became visible and active in the world and communities were formed with solidarity and with love in the midst of anarchy and trauma, you know, and, um, and, and those are, those are things, you know, to be honest, I think that we all move through times like that. We all, we all, we all carry, you know, um, we all carry our past with us. And, um, and, you know, I think that when, when your experience, so much of it is in marginal communities, is, is in communities that, 
um, have more of a tendency to disappear, you know, then it becomes, you know, something to, I, I think then, then in a way it becomes more rewarding to work with it and to really, to really own that as part of your life and where you're from, you know, cause, um, cause just, I mean, you know, like, like, uh, like this bar closed not long ago, the stud and, um, and that bar had so much queer history. Oh, so much queer history. decades. Yeah. So many different eras. Yes. And, and, and one of the things about it is that, you know, these institutions that are fragile carry our history, you know, and mm -hmm. so in a way, you know, what you can do with art is bring those things to life. And I also think you can provide kind of um, maps or tools or insights to, uh, to a next generation that doesn't have access to all those places and experiences. It's so important. And especially, you know, I think as a queer writer, and I think that we're so fortunate in that I, I feel like generally queer people really care. We care about our history. We know that it's sort of been taken from us and been erased. And it is so precious and important when there is a writer like yourself that is able, that, ha that, that just like has the inspiration to actually get it out and be like, this is what it was like. It's, it's so important. It's so fascinating. Well, it's, um, it's, it's yeah. yeah yeah you know like I was always in that like sex positive sort of sex radical mm -hmm. part of the uh -huh. like, lesbian world and yeah and I feel that that part of it is actually um in some ways is more invisible now you know because the people who wrote books and who were big feminists and had academic careers and all this from that period, they did, they weren't really that comfortable with us. So, um, so one of the things- right, so I, the history that got recorded was yeah. the people who, right, it wasn't the, the people who were fisting each other in the back room, right. but that was where the action was happening. And that's right. where the, the theory was being put into practice in so many ways, right? That's the radical practice, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, totally. Um, yeah. And yet you, um, you know, you, I know you don't have like an, you know, an academic career per se, but like, especially in Honey Mine, there's pieces in that that really very strongly veer out of memoir, personal narrative. It goes, there's some pieces that feel like theory. They really do. And I, it, it made me so curious is like, oh, it's like, oh, there's this whole other voice that you have that you, that you seem equally as inspired and comfortable in writing. And so it made me wonder like, what, what's your relationship, I guess, to theory? in the midst of, you know, all this writing that you're doing about actual life and practice. Well, you know, one thing that was cool about new narrative in San mm -hmm. Francisco in the eighties is that it was really community-based. So mm -hmm. the way I found out about it is I walked in, I literally walked into a free workshop that was free because there was a grant that paid Bob Gluck to teach it. That was how oh. I found out about it. And, and you know, I, I think, I mean, looking back, I think that, you know, a new narrative was not completely white, but mostly white. And, um, mm -hmm. but it was mixed class. It was more mixed mm -hmm. class than any of these university, um, like, you know, theoretical discourses. It really was, there yeah. really was presence of people that, 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 you know, you know what I mean. And, um, mm -hmm. So, um, so that, and I think that also just 
there were so many things about my life that I had a hard time representing. You know, there was, um, there was my queer life. There was my parents having been communists. There was mm -hmm. growing up on the South side of Chicago, which was a really intense experience. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and like leaving the South side of Chicago, it was really hard for me to describe to people what it was like there. I didn't really have the language for that. I didn't have the language for lots of things. And, yeah. and I, one of the things that I got from my exposure to new narrative was to really feel the freedom to experiment so I could find that, so I could find that language, you know? And, um, and because it was like a little, it was almost like a bus full of like freaks. And so this little bus full of freaks, we could actually all support one another to take these, to take these risks and everybody would be on board, you know? And um, when you, when you walked into that workshop with, with Robert Gluck, where were you in your writing career at that point? Like, had you, had you been sort of struggling to tell a story and not finding your voice or were you like, just were you curious? What brought you in there? Where were you at? Well, the, the coolest part of my life, my writing life before then, is that I had been a work, in a workshop with Gloria Anzaldúa, who's... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, who, she's fabulous, you know. But actually, she wasn't anymore living in San Francisco at that time. But, um, but you know, what I'd been influenced up to that point was mostly kind of straightforward, the sort of lesbian feminist way of writing and that I, 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 you know, I think that I was just too, too much into sex, too much struggling with my material, too mm -hmm. interested in sort of breaking things if I was uncomfortable with them. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I felt, I felt like a I sort of felt like a bad girl in that context. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to write mm -hmm. that kind of political narrative that makes everybody feel self-esteem. Like I just couldn't get on board <laughs> with that. <laughs> you know, I just, I didn't have it inside myself. And, um, and with a new narrative allowed me to rely more on my own experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly it opened the door to including all kinds of eroticism and um yeah so so that was and you know San Francisco at that time was really it had lots of queer undergrounds um was that was in the late 80s yeah late 80s and early 90s it's like for example that was when on our back started and mm -hmm. um and like uh and I knew all the people at on our backs and um mm -hmm. um and, and just as an example of what it was like, there was a lesbian bar called Bay Bricks. I don't know if it was there when you got to town, but Bay Bricks yeah. used to be where my, some of my friends that on our backs produced um, strip shows every week where the Mitchell brothers strip strippers would come and, and there was this whole sort of like lesbian scene around the strippers and it was so, fun it was so fun <laughs> were the, were the strippers like lesbians everything. also what was that were the strippers lesbians also yes yeah so totally 
Yeah. And in fact, one of the strippers was really involved in on our backs. Uh -huh. So, and, and, and her partner was like one of the organizers. So it was, it was very much, it was like this, there was this sort of more orthodox lesbian feminist, blah, blah, blah. And then there was Samoa. And then there was, um, yeah. you know, Bay Bricks and the strippers. And then there was, oh God, there was a, there was like the SM bar. Yeah. A dyke SM bar? Yes, totally. Wait, yeah. wait what? Yeah, I missed the, that for sure. Yeah, it was, uh, I didn't used to hang out there so much, but I totally have friends who were there all the time. What was it called? <laughs> Scott's. It was called Scott's. I don't know about Scott's. Oh, God. Yeah. I don't know. See how important this is? I mean, I feel like I'm like a, I'm a connoisseur of queer history, especially, you know, of that era in San Francisco. And I've never heard of this bar. It's so important. Oh, my God. Oh, you know, you know, your writing is not only art and inspiring on that level. It's like a historical document and is inspiring and and so important on that level as well. Della Grace Volcano has fabulous photos of Scots, like fabulous. No, but so actually, funny. I mean, yeah, those photos are great. And sometimes he puts them on Facebook. And if mm -hmm. you want to dig around and look at the old, I, I've, I've done that and I've seen, you know, friends of mine from back then, but so yeah. Thank God people had cameras, you know. <laughs> So like you talk about um, Honeymine specifically and like how this book and how this collection came together. Um, you know, I went through a period of being um, uh, just things were not working for me financially. And mm -hmm. so I had to make money. So I kind of left all the writing things I was doing and I really plunged into making money. It was mm -hmm. just something I needed to do at that time. And in the middle of this period, um, there, there was a conference that, um, that was organized at UC Berkeley on new narrative. And I did a bunch mm -hmm. of readings for that. And at that conference, Eric Sneathan and Lauren Levin came up to me and said, we would like to edit with you a, a book of your selected work. And I was like, really? <laughs> And so that started to be a project. And originally it was going to be like all, like all stuff, but then mm -hmm. we decided that we wouldn't do the plays. And then we decided that the poetry was more available, that we'd focus on the fiction. And with fiction, mm -hmm. there was more stuff that was, um, that had never been published. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's how it came to be. And we did like some real editing passes, especially on the unpublished stories. Yeah. And, um, the Agatha Letters was unpublished. And I love I, the Agatha Letters so much. It's so good. Oh, there's so many amazing sentences and just things that resonate. And I love um, you writing about yourself in the first person. And I wanted to talk to you about like what, how that decision came about and what that feels like and what's the like, what's the, how does that serve what you're, what you're doing, making that choice. Well, it's really interesting because it's like I created Camille Roy and we've lived parallel lives, right? And um, and I have to say, I created Camille Roy because I didn't want to have, uh, you know, I didn't want to be attacked for my writing, which I have to say was not, was something that 
had happened to me and my family. So I thought, okay, I'm going to create this persona and I can do absolutely whatever I want. And I don't have to worry about that ever again. And so I did that and it actually worked. Even after, even after the point where everybody knew, mm-hmm. no one, you know, it kind of, it just, it stopped that. And um, so that was a very, uh, it, was, it was useful for me, but then it had the function of like, I have this almost like a doppelganger that's like going through life with me and we have this relationship and we'll go on through life. And eventually when you put all those stories together, it begins to seem like it's this novel (laughs) about Camille Roy's life and Camille Roy even has, takes herself so seriously that she even writes about her own work. And, you know, the whole thing begins to seem like a type of big fiction, right? And- um, It's super meta, it's great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I've done that a little bit and I found it really freeing to get to, there's just, it it takes the piss out of yourself in this way that is really freeing, I think. Well, I mean, I hope that one thing people get from this work is just the feeling of permission and that with permission comes uh, pleasure becomes more available, you know, permission and pleasure go together. So, um, yeah, it's my dream to sort of give, give permission and a part of it that is for knowing the truth, you know, give permission mm-hmm. to tell the truth. And I think that with women, when p- women get into, oh, I'm telling the truth, it's, it begins to seem overloaded with trauma. Mm-hmm. And there's trauma yeah. in the book, but I want the trauma and the pleasure to not uh, be so at odds, you know, to have a memoir of survival and pleasure that also shows how, what a struggle it is to survive you know? Yeah. And it shows that. And I think that there's something about your voice. I, I really love how you're writing about how you write about trauma, how you've always written about trauma, where it's, it's almost sort of woven into the fabric of life in this way, where it's not like, stop the presses, a trauma right. has occurred. It's like, well, of course, a trauma has occurred. And then this other thing occurred. And then there was an echo of the trauma and a new trauma and then no trauma. It's like, and, and I feel like that's sort of what life is like, you know, and, and it's sort of how I kind of want to, I don't know, interact with my own traumas. So it's not only a, a model of writing and writing about trauma too. It's also this great model of like, how to psychologically like approach your own trauma. It's just, it's really fantastic. It, it makes me think of a piece that is that you wrote that is not in this book, but it was in an anthology that is almost certainly out of print on a press that is most certain, almost certainly no longer in existence, but if anyone can find it on the internet, you should. It's called, it was called Cooking with Honey, What Literary Lesbians mm. Eat. And you wrote a piece called Date Rape Brownies about baking brownies for the person who, date raped your sister I believe and it uh, was the, the the girlfriend of the rapist baked brownies for the rape victim who was living oh with her sister which was in the house where I lived yeah it was like yeah. so that this and and this was her way of trying to get her to not prosecute the rapist was it was just like I just it was really mind-blowing the way that you were just writing about rape was again because it wasn't like stop the presses, 
there was a rape, you know, and it was, and it's like, it's, I'm so torn, like, as a feminist and as a person who's a woman, to like, you know, if you want to stop the presses, it's like, you know, what the fuck, you, it's, you want to make a big deal about it, you don't want to minimize it, because um, the culture minimizes it, but it's almost, sometimes it is almost like the way that, you know, like, queer people are, are forced almost by the culture to make such a fucking big deal about being queer, because we're being stepped on for being queer, and you're just like, actually, I don't, it's not that I don't really want to talk about it all the time. You guys are making me. And it's sort of almost the same thing. It's just like, yeah, like, you know, we've all fucking gone through this trauma and our life goes on and we're not completely, you know, like there's damage. And then like, maybe we're not completely damaged from it. Maybe there's other ways of coping or maybe we're meant to become very damaged by this life on earth. And this is just one of the many ways that, that we, we do it and we survive, you know? I don't know if I that think made you kind of have to make friends with your people, right? You have to make friends with your PTSD. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. And if you're friends with yeah. your PTSD, you can learn to live with each other and still enjoy yourself. But you have to really, <laughs> you have yeah. to really get to know it, you know? Mm -hmm. Not a casual acquaintance. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of like banding about of the word of like healing, this idea of healing trauma. And I think that's that's the healing of it, right? It's not like, I've, it's gone away, you know, it's like, no, I actually just like know who I am really close, really intensely, you know, and what made me this way. And, right. you know, now let's go get on with it. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you wrote, you write so much about, I love reading the stuff that you write about the sex industry, because it was just like an era before I was in the sex industry. And I feel like I was buoyed a lot in my decision to do that and had done it by like, the third wave of feminism was just coming around the bend. And so there was this like a, a, like a more of a liberation. Like I had read the sex work anthology before I even did sex work. So I had sort of this framework that had been provided for me by the counterculture and by feminism of like what sex work might actually be. But I feel like when you were stepping into it, you didn't have that. In fact, you had a feminism that was um, very anti-sex in general and certainly anti-sex work. And, I'm wondering what 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 it's all looked like from your vantage point, these shifts and um, what the sex industry is and has been. You know, um, I was just kind of thrown into a situation where mm -hmm. I felt like I was living with um, uh, activism and also big silences. So there was um, a massage Oh God, it was, that was, there was a crazy time in this particular town where I was living, where mm -hmm. a lot of the lesbian community worked in these massage parlors. And it, they also, they also did, did organizing in the transit workers union. They also did a huge organizing effort to uh, come um, to the aid of two Filipino nurses who had been unjustly accused of murder. It was just this incredibly right. activist community and part uh -huh. of the activism was uh, also unionizing. There, there was a unionization effort of in this town that was before my time that um, Anchi actually was active in uh, at, a, at a massage parlor. And then after, at a certain point, they organized their own massage parlor. So the massage parlor in Ann Arbor, Michigan was completely run by the women who worked there. And it wasn't, so yeah, so there was just, the, the thing that was so, weird about this time was that the things people actually did there wasn't a set of ideas to really explain it you know like there wasn't mm -hmm. you know 
a pro-sex narrative. There wasn't, although right. somebody, there was a bust at the parlor and there, a lot of us came together to organize uh, for, the, um, for the effort um, to get everybody off, which it worked, you know, like it, this was an amazingly successful community and like all this political stuff, it worked. And, um, and, and, they, um, and we brought Margot St. James Margot St. James, oh. she came to our little town and we had this hooker's ball. And, no uh, way. Yeah, I didn't realize she yeah. traveled with her hooker's ball. Hooker's ball. Yeah. We wow. had a hooker's ball in Detroit. I have, the, I have one of the flyers in my basement. But um, so, you know, this was the thing. There was a, a lot of... Um, um, there was a, people were very serious feminists, but they were also bashing their heads against feminism for many of these things. And that this yeah. was, uh, the, this was community-based politics. It wasn't university-based politics. Mm -hmm. So um, it wasn't like, I think when things are in the university, everything becomes very much like you have warring discourses, you know what I mean? And when things are based yeah. in the, Community, you have sort of community-based activism and people are coming from that place rather than mm -hmm. coming from their academic position. So there was a lot of activism around prostitution and anyway, um, so, um, and to be honest with you, that was one of the things that I, I kind of needed to break out into experimental writing to begin to represent because yeah. I had too many, like, how do I write about that? Like, none of the people that I knew as writers dealt with any of this material. Plus, my partner's incest was exposed right before we got together. And so there were there were lots of ways I was kind of plunged into this community. She was yeah. dealing with her incest and, um, um, and, and she worked out a lot of the ways that her involvement in prostitution actually was healing for her in terms of what mm -hmm. she experienced as an incest survivor. So, you know, I was just getting all of this information, which like how, can I? How and you were what, what? like twenty? What? Yeah. How right. old were you? Exactly. And like, I mean, like, oh my yeah. god, your mind must have just been coming off your shoulders, like so, oh, so much life coming at you. It was. It was totally like that. I mean, um, you know, I think of that. I actually think of that atmosphere when I think of your first book, because I relate to that atmosphere in your first book. Everything is just like. It's like a million different pop guns are going off at once. Yeah, I mean, I relate to, to all of it in yours as well. Just like life coming at you and, yeah. and constantly making the decision to step into the stream of it, you know, like yeah. stepping right into it. Right. And, um, but so much of it just coming at you externally also right. and just, yeah. Yeah, I oh just wanna God. say, you know, I was looking at my bookshelf the other day. I have so many books by you, Michelle. You're- uh, you so, that makes me so happy because yeah, I do, I do so you love you. I mean, I love you. So thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. I, that's an honor. That's an, it's an honor to end up being mutually influential with one of your influences. That's like the greatest. It's very, it's a loop. It's a cool loop. Who are your, who are your, um, 
you know, who are your influences? Like you talked about Robert Gluck and how that, how changing that was for you to, and, and Gloria and Um, who else, who else do you feel like, you know, I, I, Eileen. I believe I first heard Eileen in about 1985, mm -hmm. maybe it was 86, Wow! but it was a long time ago. I heard them at, um, San Francisco Poetry Center. Although I think the reading was actually on Valencia Street and um, it just blew me away. It just blew me away. And um, uh, the people that I, the people that were influencing to me at that time, you know, were really people whose writing I could translate into permission. So mm -hmm. um, I was also influenced by Kathy Acker. I was influenced by uh, Bruce Boone. I was influenced by Carla Harriman, who Carla Harriman's, her work is very experimental. Um, and it also has this tremendous like physicality and energy that just kind of electrifies me. So one thing I learned from Carla is not, is, is to let that energy flow even when the writing is has some um, relation to theory. So, um, um, and yeah, who else? I mean, they're just like, ah, uh, lots of people. Yeah. Um, you know, ha having created such a body of work that really does sort of like delve into the past and into the the personal past and the in the communal past it's makes me wonder if over that time period has your like understanding of your own history shifted and has the way you write about it shifted or the i feel that any sort of like i feel that i'm more integrated as a person i feel that some of the um some of the ways that I kind of fractured my writing was related to the ways that a lot of material didn't, um, I wasn't at ease with the diversity and extremity of my own experiences. And mm -hmm. so I could start writing and kind of shift, you know, like because in order to deal with this kind of material, I would have to move into a certain state of mind and then dealing with other material was a very different state of mind. And, and I think over the years, as, I've, as my writing has sort of incorporated more of my life and integrated everything together, um, there's a way that I feel calmer and um, um, so I've, I, uh, there's a certain kind of fracturing that I don't feel like I do that much of anymore. Um, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but you know, also there's just the influence of time, you know, as I've gotten older, yeah. uh, I've lost both my parents, my partner passed away, my son is 27, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of changes and I'm, um, and there's some way that that kind of settles you, I think. There's something so shocking about being a young person <laughs> and, um, 
And when you get older, it's sort of everybody's faces the same issues, aging parents, loss of parents, children growing up, you know, all those things. They're, mm -hmm. it's, it's this very, these very common human issues, you know, everybody has mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the way that you use, well, I'm thinking of the use of detachment in new narrative writing in general, and really in your writing in particular, and wondered if you had anything to say about the role or of detachment or as a tool, if you feel like. What's an example of detachment? I mean, I, I think that it's so, I feel like when you are writing about Camille and mm -hmm. history, the way that it, it's, it does the trick of like what I'm always hoping and striving to do of like putting like a movie camera on the scene of the life. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not necessarily in it anymore, but I'm seeing it. And I guess that's how I'm feeling like a sort of ability to step away, maybe emotionally, even as the work is so emotionally evocative, like I, it gives me so many feelings and, you know, but there's like, there's something where it's almost under a pane of glass and you're able to look at it. You know, one of the things that I like to do is I like to investigate mm -hmm. um, my um, my understanding of kind of what's really going on and what aspect of reality people repress or kind of smother. And um, there's a tension between those things. So it becomes kind of a political investigation to go mm -hmm. into that. And um, sometimes when I get an idea of a story, uh, it gets me really excited because it's like I figured out a way to kind of attack what I think of as these oppressive forces, you know, or these oh. these things that I don't like, that I that I don't like, you know, and and then I figure out how I'm gonna mm, get. And then when I do that. I get excited and I, I kind of see how to structure things so that that comes forward. And, and, and I think you can bring across something which you really care about politically by creating a world and your characters enter the world and you don't even have to have a discussion. You don't have to get anybody yeah. to agree with you. Right. They just go there because that's what the story does. And totally, yeah, yeah. yes. It's like you're setting it up and then the reader is inevitably going to sort of fall right into the, what you want them to fall into. Right. Without sort of being like, hey, think right. like this. It's so, it's so elegant. It's like a, a really elegant booby trap <laughs> that you want <laughs> to fall into. You're like, oh, here I am. I love that, that like, you know, you are so politically minded and you're, you're writing about political times and the actions that people took to deal with these hyper-politicized, you know, times. And the, the actual writing feels like a political battle against oppression. I mean, that's so beautiful. And I just wonder if that's why the sort of like political urgency, one of the reasons why that sense of political urgency is so palpable in your writing is that it's there in the actual writing of it. That's so cool. Yeah, well, I think the writing had to come up through the cracks, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, anyway. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I feel like we're a little 
at the, I think we've gone over, which doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. Is it, can Camille read another little bit or have we, have we yeah, done we too can, much? No, we can close out with a little reading. You can always edit out that part where it sounds like I'm saying rape is no big deal. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hear that. I feel, I feel bad that I called Eileen she. Should we edit that out? Oh, um, I don't know. I guess, yeah, if it's possible to just yeah. cut out the she part. Yeah, you cut know. that out, because I don't want to, I don't want to upset Eileen. It's no, just, yeah, we can do I've that. Since I've known her since the eight, uh, yeah. since I've, it's, you know, everyone's, yeah, there's so a grace long. period with a new pronoun. Everyone has yeah. a yeah. grace period, but it doesn't need to be on the podcast. No, no we can edit that out. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, let me see. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll read another page. And just tell me when we're on. Are we on? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. The war at home. It was luxurious, all that anger. It sprang forth everywhere like the weeds of a wet, hot summer in Mississippi dirt. I still miss it. I believed in that anger and its promises. I got through everything, any grueling adventure, because I was waiting for that anger to finally and completely arrive. A moment when the daily world would shimmer and crack into pieces, a broken mirror, and we would all run into the street barking like dogs, free at last. I couldn't separate my ideas from my bad dreams. What was a good idea? A bright skeleton gleaming through burning flesh but that was Sarah. She had ideas. Once I dreamed that she came to my bedside, surrounded by dogs who were baying and leaping and quivering with excitement. I can't remember if she said anything or just looked into my sleeping face. Then they all ran off, flowing down the stairs in a pack and out into the silent street. Gone. My eyelids slid up as I felt the pressure of her image. If it weren't for loneliness, I wouldn't have fucked anyone. I didn't want to participate in anything. I wanted to just watch. I mean, Camille wanted that. And the parlor was the best place for that for her because in the parlor, the mouth of the world and the mouths of girls were pressed unusually close together. So the girls got to trick out something precious something which the world didn't want girls to have, information. This is how the world works, baby. Camille wanted her life illuminated by the information which the world told her she couldn't have. And whoring was perfect because it was like life, but more blunt. The world takes off its pants for every teenage whore. Is that real enough? Camille thought blunt meant no secrets, but she was wrong. There were plenty of secrets in the parlor, just different ones. Oh, God, if that doesn't make you want to go on skylight.com and buy 18 copies of this book for you and all your closest friends to have a book club with, then are you even alive? Are you a real person? That was incredible. I love this book so much. I'm so grateful that I got to talk to you about it. I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, I'm very yeah. excited about that. Yeah.
Thank you again to Camille for sharing Honey Mine with us today. And thank you to Michelle for your generous conversation. You can order your very own copy of Honey Mine at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.